Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode two of season 21 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. On the show today, I'm talking to Laura Stevens, Vice President of Global Strategy, Analytics and Employee Experience at DSM. Because in the end, employee experience is essentially about designing solutions and services with the human in mind. And so my strong belief is that uh, this human-centered design is actually very critical to accelerate progress and adoption in the field of analytics. Because if we don't understand um, who the end user is, or if we don't start with the end user in mind, uh, and with a thorough understanding of what keeps these people awake at night, we will never be able to truly embed analytics into our ways of working and to get sustainable value out of it. Throughout this episode, we discuss how Laura is using her prior experience as a people analytics consultant to influence her strategy for the people analytics function at DSM. Laura also shares the synergies and opportunities that can be leveraged between employee experience and people analytics by designing services with the human in mind. We also explore how people analytics teams can help to support HR business partners and managers to become more data-driven. And finally, Laura shares her tips on how to prioritize the areas that people analytics teams should work on in order to ensure that they can scale successfully. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Laura Stevens, Vice President for Global People Strategy Analytics and Employee Experience at DSM to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Great to have you on the show, Laura. We've known each other for, for a few years, um, back to your time at Deloitte as well. Can, can you give um, listeners a brief introduction to, to you and your role at DSM? Absolutely. And hi, David. Thanks a lot for inviting me to this uh, podcast. So um, I am Belgium. I'm a mother of one, uh, one daughter, Julia. Uh, I have a background in, and also a PhD in the field of neuropsychology. And as already introduced, I work as a vice president for P&O Strategy, Analytics and Employee Experience at DSM. It's a role in which I report to the global CHRO and I joined the company a little bit less than one year ago. And as I said, you know, we'll come back to the role at DSM later because I think it's particularly interesting that people's strategy analytics and, and employee experience are joined together. But first, I'd love if you can uh, share with listeners your career journey. So you've previously worked for Inostics uh, with our mutual friend, Luke Smayers, and, and then Deloitte as a, as a consultant. Maybe share some of your thoughts on, on how you've seen the people analytics field develop over the last sort of five or six years. Yeah, so, so indeed, before joining DSM, I worked uh, at Deloitte Consulting for about seven years, where I have been um, leading and growing a people analytics service line. And as you mentioned, that also included the acquisition of uh, a leading startup in people analytics um, during those days, also formerly known as Inostics. And so over the years, we have been growing and um, developing that team into a practice of 20 dedicated people analytics consultants, which I think made us probably the largest people analytics service line across Europe. Um, it's interesting to um, reflect on how the field of people analytics has, uh, has evolved or developed over that period. Um, in my point of view, dur during those initial days, people analytics was still very much in what I like to call a sort of a nerdy experimentation phase. Um, as most yeah. of what companies were doing were basically one-off experiments, often carried out by a single data scientist or an analytics expert, which was also quite disconnected from the rest of the organization. Um, I also remember very much that maturity thinking was mainly determined by the question whether companies were doing descriptive analytics, so reporting some correlations, 
on the one hand, but also advanced or predictive analytics on the other hand. I remember also having very passionate discussions and conversations about that with Lux Meyers, uh, who was one of the absolute authorities in that space back then. And he was a very big advocate of advanced and predictive analytics during those days, whereas I was a little bit more skeptical for uh, a number of reasons. I think, first of all, the focus on advanced analytics as the absolute greatest level of maturity really distracted, in my point of view, from connecting to the real business challenge or the real business opportunity. So why start the conversation um, with a focus on the how, so descriptive or predictive or prescriptive, if we hadn't even discussed thoroughly what the challenge of an organization was or what kind of opportunities the company was facing? And then secondly, the focus on predictive analytics in HR was often justified by referring to successful use cases in the field of marketing and customer analytics. And although I find that HR has a lot to learn from that field, there's also a significant difference between HR and marketing and sales on the other hand. So in HR, we hardly work with any big data. And so the volume and the velocity of our data is vastly different from that in the field of marketing and customer analytics. And therefore, the value of productizing analytics models in HR is far less evident. And so many of the advanced analytics use cases often led to what I think maybe at best some interesting but hard to use findings. So people would typically say that's interesting and then get back to their business as usual. It's it's really interesting you say that, Laura, because actually what inspired Jonathan and I to write the book, uh, one of the, sorry, one of the inspirations for the book was that were those type of maturity models that you refer to where, you know, you have to do a descriptive analytics and then move your way up to, to, to predictive and prescriptive. And, you know, when we talk to the more mature or the more advanced people analytics teams, they weren't thinking like that. They were thinking, at what are the big business challenges that our organization's facing and, and how can analytics support that? And it could be a good descriptive model at the end of the day, could provide the insight that could unlock the, the answer to the, the insight that would solve the, the, the challenge. So when we, when we created the book, we actually talked about a number of areas that, that um, people are looking at, whether that's around you know, governance and setting up all your data standards, getting the right people, skills in the team, uh, the right technology and the right data, and then the outcomes. Ultimately, it's about the outcomes at the end of the day, as, as you said. So it's so really interesting now. Um, so what was you, you talked about some of the use cases that maybe people said, oh, that's nice. And then, OK, what's next? Um, what are some of the best use cases for analytics that, that you saw in your time as a, as a consultant? And, you know, are you able to share some of those examples with listeners? Yeah, Absolutely. For me, probably the most impactful use case was one for a labor market organization. So basically a company which allocates job seekers to the right job. Um, and before the development of the analytics model, the, the temp consultants typically guided their search and advice for a certain job just based on job seeker CV and also a personal conversation with the job seeker. And so little did they know what the chances were that the job seeker would indeed get a job. Um, neither did they actually know how to best advise or assist the job seeker in increasing chances to be deployed in a certain area. And so the analytics model that was developed brought a real fundamental change to that largely gut feeling based process. So in fact, each job seeker, for each job seeker, the model predicted the chances that the person would indeed find a job in a certain area within a particular time frame. And it all and it did so using a variety of different data sources, including CV data, but also, for instance, the historical search behavior by that job seeker. And on top of the model, which is something that I find super interesting, the model also clarified what that person could do to increase his or her chances, such as following a training. So 
I think not surprisingly, the use case wasn't based on internal HR or employee data, but on, on labor market data. But I still refer to it because obviously this is connected to the, to the topic of human capital. So that made that the model was productized and it's now a really embedded part of the new way of working for that uh, temp agency. But unfortunately, I've seen many more use cases which never made it to that stage of really embedding or becoming integrated into the business as usual. And I think it's not surprising because many of those use cases have never been designed with that end game in mind. So that means that for too long, we have been designing analytical models without a thorough understanding of the end user. So who should eventually benefit from the insights or even a reflection on how the results can can drive recurrent decision making. I think we were basically too preoccupied with ourselves and with our fancy modeling techniques. Yes, it's not always the most sophisticated models that that lead to the best outcomes. Exactly, exactly. I think retention analytics for me is one of those typical examples. So I've interacted with a a number of clients who had developed an analytically quite robust retention model, and then that produced individual risk scores. But the company then didn't know how to bring that model alive in the organization. And I mean, they work with individual risk scores, and obviously we know that not only GDPR restricts the use of working with individual risk scores, it's also just not feasible or desirable to manage retention on a case-by-case basis. So despite the analytical robustness of the model, the impact of it was limited as it couldn't really be integrated or embedded into the ways of working. I think that this is one of the examples that always sticks for me. Yeah, and I think a very key point there, you know, how do you make the insights actionable and how do you, how do you, you know, for managers perhaps in their day-to-day work? Um, so if there are manager behaviors, for example, that drive higher engagement, high performance in their teams, how do you bring those to surface to managers? How do you show them that if they do certain things differently, that they're going to achieve more positive outcomes? And then how do you measure that that's actually happening? Um, seems, okay. to, seems like good. So, so you've, you've now made, obviously, in the last, in the, in the last year, in fact, the, the move to, to people analytics uh, practitioner and leader. Now, what are some of the learnings that, that you brought with you into that role and, and how has that influenced your strategy for the, the function at DSM? I love that question, David. I think so in light of the things that I just shared, first of all, I'm not chasing advanced analytics use cases for the sake of doing something advanced. I remember when presenting my strategy that my team was saying, where are the advanced analytics use cases? So they were quite disappointing. I think that that definitely stems from my background and the experience and the things that I've seen uh, working as a consultant. Second, um, I also never start a project without a very clear understanding of the end user, what keeps these end users awake at night and how certain insights will bring change. So I think people analytics is no longer about doing something interesting. We really need to move the focus to relevance. Um, So I always tell my team, insight without action is overhead. We shouldn't be doing at all. And that is, for me, a design principle. It's not something that we only consider at the start. Um, So I think actionability is, is a strong qualification and a design criteria for me and my team, not something that we only consider after the analytics work has been done. And and I think that's perfect. Insights of the outcomes is is overhead, and you need to be thinking about the end goal at, at the start rather than just diving into diving into work. Exactly. And getting that that end user, that sponsor, the the person that actually has a problem that they want to solve and is prepared to do something about it is so it's so important. What's interesting, Laura? I mean, obviously, prior to to joining DSM, you know, one of the things that that you were known for in the market is, you know, you an expert around employee listening and continuous listening. 
Um, and that's why I think it's particularly interesting that you have ownership for both people analytics and employee experience. You know, do you think there are synergies between the two that, that you can leverage or already are leveraging? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I feel super fortunate to have both analytics and employee experience in my portfolio because the two disciplines heavily rely on one another to be successful. I think the, most intuitively, we know that employee experience is personal, it's subjective. And so this is about connecting and understanding to what matters most to our people. And so by definition, that starts from listening, from research, from analytics, not from assumptions. So therefore, employee listening and analytics for me are really the lifeblood of employee experience efforts. So that's, that's, uh, that, that's one. Probably less understood or intuitive is that people, uh, employee experience is equally important to analytics. Because in the end, employee experience is essentially about designing solutions and services with the human in mind. And so my strong belief is that uh, this human-centered design is actually very critical to accelerate progress and adoption in the field of analytics. Because if we don't understand um, who the end user is, or if we don't start with the end user in mind uh, and with a thorough understanding of what keeps these people awake at night, we will never be able to truly embed analytics into our ways of working and to get sustainable value out of it. So that is for me the second point. So employee experience is equally essential to analytics, just as much as uh, analytics and employee listening are critical for employee experience. And one of the challenges, I think, for organizations around doing people analytics, um, and I'm right, I'm glad it is a challenge, is, is, is in privacy around the data, working with works councils, particularly uh, those of us that are based in Europe, and actually focusing a lot of the analytics work on understanding and improving the employee experience. How does that support those those conversations? Yeah, for me, David, employee listening is actually, it's probably the most powerful, but probably also the easiest way to quickly collect scalable information about sentiment, about behaviors, about what matters most to our people, which is also a reason why I prioritize a lot of employee listening initiatives into my work. Um, I think for too long, analytics has been focused on the data we have. Whereas for me, a big part of the work is on data enrichment and that enrichment in the, in the space of, of employee experience clearly comes from the voice of our own employees. And so I think also from a GDPR, from a data privacy perspective, if we're very transparent as to how these results will be used to optimize the experiences of our people, it's actually quite easy. I need to be, I, I need to be mindful because obviously it requires a decent setup uh, and some thorough thinking um, and, and the right interactions with works councils and the legal department. But nevertheless, for me, employee listening and listening to the voice of employees is a much easier way than working, for instance, with passive data and system data to get a sense of how people are acting or interacting with our systems. And I think you, you hinted at one of the other key elements of employee listening there is we go out, we ask our employees questions, we collect the data, but then ultimately it needs to lead to actions, which I guess comes back to your insights to outcomes um, kind of mantra that you, that you have for your team. Yes, absolutely. So this is one of, so I think in the space of employee listening, there are a couple of things um, that, that my team is working on. And, and one of them is clearly the closing the loop and the action. I think maybe um, for me, Again, as mentioned, I think that to, that today, especially in large global organizations, there are few things that can there are only a few things that can be so powerful and impactful than a thoroughly designed and, and a robust listening strategy. And when I talk about thoroughly designed, that foremost or first and foremost for me really means that all listening efforts should have a very clear connection to our strategic priorities. 
Uh, I think for too long, uh, a lot of companies have been buying commercially exploited and very standard questionnaires, which didn't have any concrete connection to their company strategy, whether that's an overall strategy or an employee experience strategy. So it were basically the survey vendors telling us what to measure rather than determining uh, the right questionnaires in light of our strategic priorities. And that's definitely one of those areas where my team and I am um, uh, trying to bring change. And the second one for me is definitely also the actionability. Um, and I, I strongly leverage my background in neuropsychology there, where today a lot of the action is not about heavy lifting actions or uh, uh, lengthy rollout programs driven by HR, but also about activating the individual and using some of the nudging principles that um, uh, have been uh, introduced by the field of neuro uh, neuropsychology and behavioral science. So those are a couple of the, the, the elements that we uh, um, that we uh, that we prioritize to to better close the loop, and you and you see that those going down that kind of you know empowering individuals is where you actually see the action happening, and then I guess you then can use your listening to check if it's a it's happening and b what the impact is. Exactly, exactly, and I think looking at the individual as an active agent in boosting engagement, well being, and so forth is a super essential element. It's not just HR. It's not just leadership. Everyone, to a certain extent, can own employee engagement, employee experience, and therefore targeting that individual is one of the essential elements, I think, one of the steps that we need to take as a next step in the employee listening strategy. When we come back in just a moment, Nora shares how she and her team are working to embed data-driven decision-making across the HR organization at DSM and ensure that everyone has easy access to the right data. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by 365 Talents. 365 Talents is a talent management platform that uses artificial intelligence to increase internal mobility, engage your employees, and prepare for the future. Is 2022 the year you are looking to transform your workforce? Are you ready to become a boardroom rock star? If you are looking for better skills, better careers, and better business, look no further. 365 Talents is already transforming HR at companies such as EY, Alliance, and Bearing Point. Want to know how? Follow our journey and learn how improving talent experience will boost your business outcomes at 365talents.com. That's 365talents.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Laura Stevens. Now, let's get back to the conversation. So going to come back to your um, point about human-centered design. You know, when, when you think about considering the end user from a human-centered design perspective, do you also consider the HR business partners and as well as managers as your users? And, and, how, and, and if so, how are you helping both of these groups to, to consume data? consume the data and support employee experience because I guess they have an important role to play. Yeah, absolutely. So so one of um, my and my team's ambitions is to embed and scale data-driven decision-making across the P&O function or across the HR function. So we want everyone in our function basically to be able to make data-driven decisions because we simply believe that this is the essence of a credible HR function. But we also realize that in order to get there, 
we need to ensure that our people, including the business partners, get easy access to the right data. That means on one platform, so available through one platform with an intuitive front end, which also encourages them to explore data and insights very fast, even without having an analytics background. And such a platform needs to generate insights that are clearly relevant to our business partners and their respective business leaders. So it immediately needs to set them up for success in the sense that they can provide more informed, objective decisions or advice to their business leaders. So therefore, we are now heavily engaging with our business partners to understand their strategy and also their strategy enablers so that we can ensure that our platforms provide the insights that they need to do the best job possible. So in fact, our ambition is to make insights easy and relevant for our key internal clients. And, and clearly the HR business partner are uh, a crucial uh, a crucial user in that sense. You know, and, and how, how can your team help, and other people analytics team, how can they help support HR business partners with that transition to being more data-driven? Because uh, they've got so many other areas to focus on as well. I mean, um, I know a number of your peers in, in other organizations are also kind of focusing on this. Um, and some of the research that we did last year, um, 60% of people analytics told us, leaders told us that they feel responsible for helping um, enable their HR business partners. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around a, some of the stuff maybe you're doing at DSM to help HR business partners, but also generally you know, how organizations can, can support HR business partners in this journey? Yeah, my answer to that question is probably very short and simple, David. I think in my point of view, um, we aren't doing the right things if our initiatives are being perceived as yet another thing to learn or acquire. So analytics teams need to connect to business priorities and then accelerate the delivery of those priorities through data-driven insights. So if anything that we do is perceived as yet something else or yet something on top to acquire, then I think we need to look at ourselves and wonder whether we are supporting the right priorities. So again, I think, in, and you talked to one of the ways you're doing that is understanding from your business partners, your P&O business partners, what they need to, 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 to help enable them with their conversations and discussions and work they're doing with their business functions or business units. So it's that, that two-way thing. I think sometimes we think it's just about people analytics teams pushing things out. But actually, we need to understand, don't we, and, and make sure that what we're pushing out is relevant and actually helps them in their work. Exactly, exactly. I'm not at all a fan of working on an on-demand basis. So I am an advocate of pushing things, but we need to push the right things. And and what support are, you know, is the, you know, what messaging is coming from um, the, the head of uh, the, the, HR, the, the CHRO um, and the HR leadership team? To, to the rest of HR, to the rest of P&O uh, around the importance of, of being data-driven. Yeah, so being data-driven is a core uh, pillar or element in our P&O transformation. And not only as a part of our P&O transformation, it's also a company-wide priority. So we're doing a lot of work on uh, developing to an insights-driven organization. And so the nice thing is that now we are creating synergies between what is being driven at the central level by the central analytics team in becoming an IDO and taking people along. And then also what we are doing from a P&O transformation perspective in that sense. So uh, it's important, obviously, to make sure that whatever is being done reinforces each other rather than being perceived as uh, something coming out of... uh, people analytics, something coming out of the the global analytics team or the central analytics team. So we are creating synergies uh, and make sure that uh, data savviness, analytics savviness becomes um, uh, an opportunity that is streamlined uh, 
between the, the functions and also the things that are uh, being prioritized from a central uh, point of view. And it's, it's a team effort, isn't it, at the end of the day? It's, it's a people analytics team working with the business partners and the business in, in this kind of triangle, of, yeah, to basically to, to all work together to, 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 to ultimately deliver the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. And, and obviously, as a former consultant, you know, one of the things we're seeing in the more advanced people analytics teams is there are consultants within these people analytics teams interfacing directly with the business alongside business partners to really diagnose what the, the challenges are to help prioritize the work. Is that something that, that you're doing at DSM? And if so, how have you seen that, that kind of help drive this conversation forward? Yeah, I, I think it's crucial. I'm convinced that it's crucial to connect very closely to business priorities. But what I try to avoid is ending up with a laundry list of uh, desires and expectations, because a lot also depends on how the business is looking at HR. And sometimes the, the requests of people are very um, immediate. Um, so meaning I need a report today on, on this or I need immediate support on that. And so what I try to help the organization understand is if we work on such an immediate on-demand support basis, we will never be able to set ourselves up for success and, and we will never be able or have the space even to focus on continuous improvement and, and gradually growing in uh, the maturity of our data landscape. So that is an important message for me. So I take it as my responsibility to make sure that whatever we do has a very close connection to our strategic priorities. Uh, and that's where I'm obviously engaging with the PO leadership team and the senior business leaders and the executive committee. But I don't want my team to uh, knock on the door and then ask what people are expecting from us, because I don't believe that that sets, up, uh, sets us up for success. And, and how does being part, I mean, again, the research we did last year, I think it was 22% of people in your position report directly into the the, the head of P&O or the, the CHRO uh, and a part of the HR leadership team. How does that, I mean, it's a pretty obvious question, but I get it. It's, it's for listeners as well. How does that help you in your role to, to make sure that what you're doing is connected to the, the, the top business priorities? It's a tremendous help, to be honest, David. So in that sense, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, so so my, my leader, so the, the global uh, CHRO, um, opens doors. So I have a lot of conversations with uh, members of the executive committee. Um, I'm part of the global PO leadership team, which really helps in understanding the priorities of the different COEs, of the global business partners, of HRSS. So I'm sitting very close to where the decisions are being made and um, the support of, of, of the CHRO greatly helps me and accelerate some of the uh, ambitions um, when it comes to strategy realization and connecting very closely to, uh, to, to the priorities of our, uh, of our business and organization overall. And it's funny because I remember Luke, uh, Luke at Schneier's at a conference was quite a few years ago, actually challenging some of the people analytics leaders in the room and saying, if you don't report to the CHRO, I, I recommend you go and work somewhere else. And I, I must admit, uh, David, for me, this is one of the essential reasons why I uh, accepted the transition to DSM. So um, reporting to the CHRO for me is an essential condition to make sure that you are wherever the decisions are being made and that you can fuel those decisions. I want to avoid being at the receiving end um, of the value chain and rather make sure that uh, me and my team can be involved in strategic conversations. So one of the, one of the things that excites me uh, today, for instance, in terms of employee listening is that 
we are not just focusing on developing survey items for things that have already been decided or defined. So we are engaging with senior leaders and the executive committee to translate our overall company transformation strategy into concrete, into a concrete set of behaviors that our company needs. And only then we start thinking about the best way to measure these. So, so that is what really excites me about my role um, and where I expect the, the field of people analytics also to really step up. We are not an execution engine. We combine analytics expertise with a very thorough understanding of people and organization. And it's exactly that combination, the combination of both the functional expertise and the analytics expertise that justifies our very existence. Um, otherwise, why would you, wouldn't you just limit yourself to a central analytics team? And I think what's interesting, uh, hopefully we can share it, is you're one of the first people analytics leaders I've met working for a big organization such as DSM. As part of your selection process, you actually met with the CEO as well, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes. So the chief digital officer, the CEO. So that also shows um, the importance that DSM is uh, attaching to uh, evolving in this space. And um, yeah, absolutely. It was a, a very decent and robust uh, recruitment uh, process in which I got to meet many of the senior um, senior stakeholders. That's good. That's good. Uh, as you said, it really shows, it reinforces how important uh, the importance of DSM places on, on people analytics and people data, which is great. So, so what, what tips would you have for someone coming into a new people analytics leader role uh, in the way that you have? You know, what would you recommend to someone just getting started, particularly if they've only got a, a small team? Yeah, a lot obviously depends on your ambitions as well as um, the foundations that your company has been building in a space of data analytics. I think that's that's a fair thing to say. But if your goal is to deliver strategic impact, and, and that's my my goal and, and the goal of my team, I would absolutely recommend to stay uh, to stay in the driving seat. So that's the push versus the pull. And so focus on a select set of big ticket strategic priorities. So by all means, avoid ending up with a laundry list of different wishes. Um, and if you do end up with a laundry list, then use scalability as a prioritization or maybe even as a qualification uh, criteria. So prioritize those projects which have the potential to be scaled across the organization to make sure that you maximize your visibility and the impact. So that is some of uh, th that is absolutely a priority for me and my team. We have scalability as one of the top qualification criteria. So we avoid ending up in projects which are very specific to a certain business area or very specific to a certain region um, because that will never um, help us to scale the impact and eventually become a data-driven function. Uh, that's the end game. It's not just to deliver analytical projects. And it, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because you can get absolutely flooded with requests and, and having some of the, the technology in place that you've talked about, a platform that can maybe meet some of those day-to-day -day requests, those ad hoc requests, um, so people can... You know, as long as the, the, the technology you're using is easy for people to use, then they can find that information themselves. And as you said, the, the team can then focus on the, the stuff that's going to have the most impact to the business, the, the, the stuff that you can potentially scale across the organization as well, rather than, as you said, just having a laundry list of, of, of different requests. I fully agree, David, especially also with the, the capability building. So. You can explain to people what you are doing and what you're not doing, um, but sometimes that also first requires strengthening other parts of the organization to take up activities you don't necessarily see as being part of your portfolio and making people self-sufficient in certain areas, such as basic reporting. So that's why my, my team is now enabling the organization and in first, first and foremost, the P&O function in getting easy access to data so that they become much more self-sufficient in pulling reports so that we have time to, to really, really focus on 
the more advanced um, uh, value generation. So because if there's no foundational capability, people will eventually end up at your door anyhow. Yeah, you have to, you have to be thinking about the two things together, don't you, in parallel? Exactly. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Laura as she discusses how to prioritize your people analytics projects and the role of technology in supporting employee experience. So that leads like quite nice to the next question. You, you, one challenge that a lot of people analytics leaders have um, is, is around saying no to requests and prioritizing what areas they should work on. You know, I think you've already said some good stuff on this, but maybe bring it together. What, what advice do you have for people on how to say no? Uh, and helping to make sure that they stay focused. Yeah, I, I guess, David, that it's mainly a matter of investing time in your positioning and also educating the organization about your strategy and offering. So help people to understand what are you after? What does that mean in terms of priorities and ways of working? So in my experience, it also helps to help people understand that saying yes to everything will never set up the function or organization for success, as, as I already shared. So if you're busy on um, working on 15 different on-demand projects with a very small team, you will never be able to focus on building the right scalable foundations that the function needs to become a data-driven HR function. And so, as already mentioned in, um, in, in, uh, in prior, prior to this question, I think sometimes it really requires also strengthening other parts of the organization. That was for me, I think, one of the most important learnings. It's not just about saying, what, what do I want to do? Uh, because if there's no one else who can do some of the basic things, then again, people will eventually end up at your door. So now we are very much focusing on that self-sufficiency and basic reporting and uh, building the capabilities uh, uh, elsewhere in the organization to make sure that we can really bring uh, the operating model and the ideal uh, setup alive. And I guess that's also where having a, you know, a strong advocate and supporter in the chief people and organization officer that CHRO and the HR leadership team is so important as well. It's probably the most impactful uh, factor in uh, um, in all of this, yes. Okay, well, with time's flown, Laura, we, we, we're, we're to the last, the, the, last, the last question, really, which is the one we're asking everyone on this particular series. And I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. You know, what is the role of technology in supporting employee experience? I think in my point of view, David, technology is one of the many different drivers of employee experience, just like culture is or the physical environment can be. However... Yeah. It's also fair to recognize that as technology is now becoming a more central and a more vital part of how we work and how we deliver value, the impact on employee experience is probably exponential. So I think people today need tools that are fun, that are easy, that are relevant in accomplishing their work. But what they even need more today, and that's also evidenced by research, is a technology landscape that is connected and integrated. So probably the biggest detractor of positive experiences today are the plethora of 
different disconnected systems and technologies, which requires users to spend way too much time on finding what they are looking for and completing tasks they need to complete. So not only does that have a very negative impact on the employee experience, it also just eventually affects negatively affects productivity and company performance. So that is for me also, my team is supporting the development of an integrated digital roadmap to make sure that we do not approach every piece of technology on a standalone basis, but that we also consider the future and how these different systems will talk to each other uh, and how we can create simplicity for our people so that they can do a better job in, uh, in a faster amount of time. And, and actually, you talked on two other areas, culture, obviously, um, and physical environment. So one of the things I'm starting to see in um, particularly some of the organizations in the US now is that the people analytics team, as well as collecting workforce data, it's also collecting workplace data, particularly as hopefully we start to go back into our physical offices. Is that something you see as a as an opportunity for, for, for DSM? Because, you know, again, if we think about hybrid work, you know, understanding how we're going to use the office when we're in the office uh, and then potentially setting the up office up to really enable that such as innovation and collaboration is that something that you're that you're looking at or will be looking at when the time is right yeah absolutely i think the the, the last nuance is uh, is the right one david so um uh, dsm is investing a lot in what we call hybrid workplace um we we obviously like many other companies have started uh, some pulse checks uh with the, the the outbreak of of covid which is also around how can we facilitate or help our people to um um to work best in a hybrid environment. Uh, so that's one piece of work that we have initiated um, and which is ongoing. But secondly, um, uh, we will obviously also be exploring how we can use other data sources to um, uh, facilitate the transition of people getting back uh, uh, back to work. And um, yeah, I, I, I genuinely believe that people analytics can have a key role there, uh, but this is uh, something that is in uh, uh, more of the, the future pipeline, let's say. Well, perhaps something for a future podcast in a in a few years' time. Exactly. Um, we're, in, we're really in the hybrid world. Laura, it's always great to talk um, and, and hear hear your thoughts. You're a real deep thinker on, on, on our field. You know, thank you for being a, a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Can, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media and, and find out more about your work? Yes, I'm very accessible through my LinkedIn profile. So just um, look for Laura Stevens DSM and you'll easily find me. Um, and um, yeah, more than happy to, uh, to to connect the dots and um, extend my network. I think uh, th- that's one of the other things that we need to we need to connect the dots. There are so many best practices around, and David, you you and your team are doing a great a great work there, which is also why I'm, I feel super uh, honored that I can participate to this uh, to this podcast, David. So everyone, feel free to reach out. More than happy to connect the dots and learn from each other. Laura, thanks very much, and uh, very kind of you to say that as well at the end. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, David. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. and Share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week for episode three of series 21, where I'll be joined by Luek Michel, CEO at Skills Intelligence and Talent Market-based platform 365 Talents. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.